Welcome to the Hindsight Podcast. I am your host, Vu Tran. You are listening to Line of Effort number one, Eyes on the Periphery, deep dives into topics related to Russia or China. And this is part two of our interview with Dr. Lucas Filler from the Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies on the subject of China's strategic culture. We had left off talking about the power dynamics at play involving Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaigns and the powerful princeling families that influence or control the upper echelons of the Chinese Communist Party and by extension, China. Part two of our conversation will look closer at how the realist worldview shapes behavior in China itself and how that in turn manifests itself outside of China in terms of how it interacts with other nations. With that said, let's jump right back into the interview. So it sounds like the realism, kind of that dog-eat-dog worldview runs even deeper than China's view of its neighbors. It's almost endemic into the system. So like if you were to even be born into the wrong powerful family, this is your your reality every day of your life for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah, for sure. And like that's, you know, even at the lowest, you know, level of citizenship. So, okay, great example, the the social credit system, right? So China's social credit system, you know, when it first came out, there was quite a bit of outrage, especially in the West, um, not so much in China, but in, in the West about, you know, invasion of privacy and, and all these things. And again, looking at China, there was not the same outrage in China. And so the question is why, right? And in part, it yes, it is that, that the Chinese don't have the same expectation to the right of privacy. But also it's because, in fact, the social credit system was getting after a major problem in Chinese society. And so the Chinese generally, citizens generally supported it. And that problem is trust. Everyone in China, not not everyone, sorry, but there is a, a strong proclivity in China. Um, everyone's got to do what you got to do in order to survive, or at least if not survive, then, then even make money. And so there's a lot of people who are scammers and you see the same thing in obor there was a lot there's a lot of obor smaller obor projects that were most likely not actually officially endorsed by the obor government organizations but entrepreneurial chinese businesses were slapping obor on the title or international audiences to make it sound more legitimate and so you know the social credit system was this idea that you don't know who to trust because out a reliable legal system how do you how do you there's no in, there's less incentive to to follow the rules and so everything is unpredictable and there's no way to really effectively seek justice if you've been wrong and so you between that and the cultural revolution and all these other things you know the whims of the ccp there's no stability there's no certainty and so Everyone not only has to look out for themselves and their families and their friends, but there's no point like planning. It's less important to plan for the future because, you know, ultimately you do have no idea anything could happen, right? You could have all your money to bank and then someone decides, you know, the bank collapses or someone, some corrupt person walks away with all your money or the CCP just freezes your your funds because you got on the wrong side of someone more powerful and they accused you of corruption, whether it's true or not. And so the social credit system addressed that issue at a basic level by saying, we're going to try to help establish a way for you to know who you can trust, like who you can do business with. And that has been not super effective, but it's still being developed. And the 
extreme of this is that there have been instances where, for example, in the social credit system, there, there are limits to Chinese willingness to not have privacy. So one example that just comes to mind now is this is a bunch of years ago, maybe like four years ago or so. I th- one of the, Some city in China, I don't remember which one, it was not Beijing or Shanghai. They basically posted on the Ministry of Public Security, I think, on the website, they were, I think it was jaywalkers. And they basically had been using the safe city, smart city, you know, Huawei facial recognition technology that China's trying to wire throughout the country. And then they use like basically, you know, early AI to identify citizens who were guilty of jaywalking. And then they posted the national ID cards of those offenders on the the MPS website uh, for for that locality, basically, again, sort of shaming them and trying to use them as an example for others. And there were protests because, you know, the national ID cards have a lot of personal information and a lot of PII. And the Chinese people thought that, that this was not commensurate with with the crime of jaywalking and in the, you know, they protested and in the end, uh, the MPS, I think, issued a public apology and, and took down the, the photos. So there are limits, even in China, to infringement of privacy. Just quickly before we move on, I, I just want to ask you one question about competing cliques, because you had said earlier that those have largely been wiped out by Xi Jinping. For our audience, there used to be kind of Jiang Zemin, so two presidents ago, uh, he had his own clique, and then his successor, Hu Jintao, had his own clique, and then you had the Xi Jinping clique. So those have been wiped out by Xi Jinping, but I've also read reports where there there are new cliques forming, but it's really amongst his protégés now. So it's... Hmm. It's Xi Jinping, there's only one click that's really the Xi Jinping click, but in that under that umbrella of the click, there's still plenty of factions that are vying for for supremacy. Is that something you're seeing in your research or is that a nascent thing or is it not going to turn out to be a thing? Good question. My short answer is I'm not sure. I agree with you. You know, there was the Communist Youth League and the Shanghai factions. My sense, I don't know what the sort of current faction breakdown or click breakdown is. Going back to what I said before, I think that there's probably not a very clear sense from anybody, including in the CCP. You know, there's so much politics and maneuvering largely based on, you know, self-interest. I don't think that there, you know, there's a strong factions at this point. I think Xi Jinping's driven them underground pretty effectively, but I, I do think that there are people who agree with one another and are critical of Xi Jinping's decisions and policies. Uh, and I think that they are probably at least subtly working in small ways to further you know their preferences over some of xi jinping's policies and i think we, we see some of those every once in a while and when they're sort of notable although probably subtle changes in china's especially domestic policies but i am not i don't focus on that enough to to give you any specific examples so from a western perspective when we look at prc international relations theory and thought can we draw parallels to Western views of realism, liberalism, and constructivist schools of international relations thought? You know, are they getting that from us, or is there like a very distinct realism with Chinese characteristics kind of thing going? Same for liberalism with Chinese characteristics and constructivism. What, how are they interpreting our fundamental schools of thought? Yeah, so I mean, the their IR scholars are well versed 
in you know Western IR theory. Um, you know, I was at Renmin University for two years in their international relations school, and the professors there absolutely know these and they are used as handy sort of frameworks for discussing policies and, and behavior, especially in the West. There's a general sense that's been going, you know, there's been a, a thread, intellectual thread in China for a good number of years that China needs to come up with its own IR theory. It, it doesn't, it shouldn't use, and it, it would be not very helpful to use Western theories for a non-Western culture and political style of governance. That being said, I, I think that there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, there hasn't been any specific sort of theory that is China homegrown that seems to be popular within Chinese academics. But then, you know, the other aspect of this is even in in America, to what extent does IR theory actually sort of how much does it use? How much influence does it have on U.S. government decision makers? Right. And, you know, in some cases, you do have academics in influential positions in the U.S. government. But even then, I think that there's it's hard to sort of if you're a political realist, you know, or constructivist, you know, how how do you use that in your day to day for making policy and political decisions? You know, I think it, those theories reflect and maybe sharpen people's worldviews and how they prioritize different considerations. And I think that's true in China as well. But I think that there is not a super refined um, Chinese international relations theory. And I, I don't think that it's given uh, a lot. I don't think it has a lot of influence on CCC, uh, CCP decision making. But again, it, you know, one of the, the things that at least in my recollection, IR theory professes is that IR theory does not predict behavior. It only helps explain behavior. And so I think for me, at least, political realism is a very important aspect of the Chinese perspective, in particular, the sense that the world is too dangerous to allow morality or values or ideals to to constrain state behavior. Which even again, like Clausewitz was similar, and Machiavelli actually. Um, it's not that they denied that there was a moral component to foreign policy and international relations, etc. It was just that. The world's too dangerous to constrain to you know hold yourself back because other countries are not going to, and so you'll just lose, and then your security will be, the state security and national security will be at threat. So in the making of a, another episode, we were discussing Sun Tzu, and we were talking about how most Chinese people haven't actually read The Art of War, but they have seen Romance of the Three Kingdoms in some version. Playing off of that, how much of IR theory or like these ideas actually permeate popular culture in China? So like most people might not have read these books, but I'm sure they like have at least watched one remake of uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms or some version of it. Um, and a lot of IR theory, I mean, you can probably write your own book about IR theory and Romance of the Three Kingdoms, so many concepts you can find parallels in. Um, for our listeners, it's like the equivalent of everybody in America having watched Game of Thrones, but Game of Thrones gets remade every 10 years. That's how, uh, I think, pervasive some of these cultural icons are in China. So even though they've never read any of these books, mm. uh, like how much of these ideas are actually still there, just permeated in their popular culture? Absolutely. So for one, I think that 
PLA professional reading does include Sunsa, as well as the other sort of uh, military classics. But for the ordinary person, I, as you said, I mean, I think a lot of it is baked into the culture, certainly including TV, but um, in, in many other ways as well. And so I think a lot of the, the lessons um, and axioms are there, but people, you know, a lot of Chinese people know them, but they may not be able to recite them. Um, and also interested, so, you know, I know you had someone, a Sun Tzu expert come in, but one of the points that that I've always thought was that Sun Tzu was, was a military advisor, strategist who was, you know, his book, as well as the rest of the military classics, they're manuals for fighting a war. And so there is generally a, a presumption in them that force will be used. So even when without fighting is not meant to say don't use force it's meant to say be very judicious about how you use force because it's the least desirable tool for a nation imposing its will on others so you know i think that the one of the things that that helps transmit a lot of these strategic preferences if you will is there are a lot of stories and i think china does a very good job because it's understandably proud of its long history and culture. And so, as you may know, like Chang Yu's, right, which are these sort of four character sayings that, you know, are just such a part of culture um, that everyone, everyone knows them. And so there's multiple books written that look at Xi Jinping's speeches and analyze, for example, the quotes that he has in those speeches to try to discern the influences. And so in a phenomenological way, you know, the stories that the national stories that are told are a succinct way of conveying a much more complicated concept by just referencing a story or a famous line from from a historical event. And so I think these are so common across Chinese culture that there's a, a broad, a, a pretty broad understanding of these concepts, even if, for example, they may not know it comes from Sun Tzu, or if it does, they may not be able to, to re- recite the adage word for word. I'm very interested in how you think Western thought has really shaped the CCP's view on geostrategic thinking and culture. So on this point, what I'm really referring to is a lot of the PRC's up-and-coming leadership or their children are Western-educated technocrats, right? So famously, Xi Jinping's daughter graduated from Harvard uh, with a degree in psychology. So you know, how much of Western education really ends up influencing them? Or is it they get an education in the West and then they come home to China and the realities of surviving in China trump anything they could learn over here in the West? Great question. I, I've thought about this in a slightly different way quite a bit. So engaged a lot with Chinese law students when I was living in China. And I, I thought it was very interesting because the Chinese law schools teach you know, Western law. And, and many of them have sort of Western lawyers and judges and you know, legal professors come and teach them. However, then once the students get out into the real world and start practicing law in China, they very rapidly discover that the Chinese legal system doesn't work at all like the way that they were taught in school. And I think that in some sense, this is, an, you know, it's it's a good opportunity for the West because the Western legal system, as I kind of referenced earlier on, is about the individual and individual rights. 
But more importantly, quoting or paraphrasing John Rawls, justice, you know, the legal system in, in all cases is about justice, right? And how you define justice. And in the West, one of the dominant ways that our legal system defines justice is fairness, uh, which is also equality. And so, whereas in the Chinese system, individuals are not equal, it's a hierarchy. And so, when you learn a legal system that treats everyone as equal before the law, I think that has universal appeal, especially to people who live in countries where things aren't fair like that. And there's no way to sort of seek justice. And so I've thought that between sort of you, you know, Western soft power, because these ideas are baked into our TV and movies and everything else, but especially for law students who learn these principles and generally it uh, resonates with them. And then they realize that the, the Chinese system doesn't, doesn't work like that. So the question is when these young students and young lawyers, as they sort of advance in their careers, to what extent will they retain these beliefs? And then to what extent will they try to influence the CCP system to better incorporate them? The optimistic part of me says it's it's inevitable, right? And this is also why in China, the CCP, one of their common messages are, quote, cultural confidence and building its own soft power and, and all these things, because it does see, whether it's our TV and movies, but you know our legal system, et cetera, they do see that as an ideological threat. But I also think that because it is such a, a dog-eat-dog world, where doing the right thing, especially when it's uh, it's risking your self-interest, um, you know, until there's actually a functioning legal system, uh, I don't think that there's a lot of opportunity to improve sort of the governance systems because you're still subject to all the party infighting. And so trying to do the right thing, you know, and sticking your neck out makes you incredibly vulnerable to, you know, your competitors. And since it's a dog eat dog world, everyone has to claw over everyone in order to, to survive. And so um, I, I'm not super optimistic that the younger generations will be able to or would be willing to make a strong sort of reform for the governance. And it's a other thing that adds to that is that, you know, the CCP sort of propaganda, it's very effective. It's very clever. I often will point to, and I, sometimes when I'm, I'm briefing senior leaders, I'll send them. So the China puts out about every two years, a white paper, uh, a official white paper, that is basically the state of human rights in the United States. Uh, and this started shortly after Tiananmen massacre, because after Tiananmen in 89, the U.S. Congress started putting out a report on the state of Chinese human rights. And so China did this very quickly as a sort of tit-for-tat response. They put it out in English, and it's maybe like eight pages. And it is I find it to be a really good reminder of the insidiousness of the Chinese propaganda system. Because when you read it, first of all, it's really uncomfortable to read because it's, you know, this eight page criticism, uh, excoriation of the United States and its values and, and politics and, you know, hypocrisy. But what I think is really interesting and insightful about it is that it generally is using true facts, right? It's not making things up, but it's conflating correlation and causation. And so, it, but it does it in such an insidious way that, again, you know, the way that it 
influences the ordinary Chinese person and how they view and interpret, for example, U.S. actions, you know, like from China or from anywhere, the U.S. democratic system, especially in the last couple administrations, seem crazy, right? I mean, it's a it's a circus and it's almost a farce in some senses, right? And especially when you have Western media sensationalizing stories. But then when you add in that the Chinese media, the state media is twisting, you know, it, it, twisting and exaggerating aspects further to say to the Chinese people that look at how smoothly the CCP operates compared to the chaos of the Western system or the American system. Like, would you want to live in the United States where, you know, if you're presented a parody in the United States, which is an exaggeration of the inefficiencies and the, uh, the party infighting and the paralysis, as well as, uh, you know, social inequities and all these other things, if you exaggerate all into attention, all sort of the problems the United States has without recognizing the corresponding advantages of it, then it's not all that difficult to convince others that China's rise is inevitable and America's decline is inevitable. And I don't think that's true in either case. But my point being that having access, Xi Jinping, you know, was an exchange student in the United States and it didn't seem to change his opinion all that much. In part, there's the idea that the United States and, and Western democracies, capitalism is all about greed, right? And it's all about me, me, me. And that's not something that, you know, is uncommon to hear as a criticism from Americans as well as people, you know, Westerners overseas. So, you know, I, I think we should continue to leverage our soft power because it's it's powerful and it's one of the hardest things for China to counter. But at the same time, we should be realistic in our expectations of how much it might have the ability to change the Chinese system. So this next question is uh, a two-parter. So David Shambaugh, the notable China scholar, he's pointed to uh, Fang and show like an opening and closing cycle that he thinks has characterized China's relationship with the world since Mao Zedong. I think this is a good place to discuss that in terms of whether or not it would be prudent to adjust our, our strategic outlook and policies, even if China exits its current closing phase and transitions back to a period of opening up again. I think another way of asking this question is, has China's geostrategic outlook changed significantly since the time of Mao Zedong? So I will grant that there has been evolution in how they see the world. But in your view and based on your research and experience, has that evolution been significant? Has that really just been at the margins? And let's say China tomorrow does a 180 in its foreign policy around the world and how it chooses to interact with other countries. You know, should that change the way we view China or is that more of a transitory thing where like, they'll go back to being like the current China that's giving the world a, a big headache? Just it'll just be 40 years from now and we're doing this all over again just with a new generation of Americans. Mm, yeah, good question. So I'm not as knowledgeable about sort of Shambaugh's sort of the the cycle of opening and, and closing. I know a little bit about it, but I, from the, the second part, which was sort of the geostrategic part perspective, I, again, I, I fall back to the generally political realist view in China. And so most 
it seems like most of the cycles of being conciliatory are simply convenient tools that are seen as an effective way. And you see this with Chinese negotiation quite often, and especially certainly at the government level where, for example, looking at the U.S. sustained efforts to establish you know, regular mill-mill mechanisms for dialogue and China regularly saying, yes, but we need you to show some good faith by meeting us halfway or, you know, making some concessions first. Uh, and then U.S. or others do that. And then China goes, great. But, you know, now we, we really need some concessions, you know, like you need to, to change these things. And I think, that, again, a little bit of Confucian influence here, but the Chinese style is the negotiation never ends, right? It, there's always renegotiation. And so I think for the geostrategic aspect, if China is speaking, you know, being nicer, being more conciliatory, I think it's just a negotiating tactic uh, because ultimately China sees it as a doggy dog world. And so, you know, it's going to employ whatever tact tactics it can um, to, to try to prosper in it. Um, but again, it also sees the United States is at just as insincere uh, as as China is. So I don't think that China thinks it's being sincere uh, and and the United States misunderstands. I think it thinks that both both countries are doing the same doing the same thing and whoever, you know, can leverage it the most at that moment wins wins that battle and then there'll be the next negotiating battle after that. In terms of the broader opening up aspect, you know, it's interesting that in writing across China, whether it's, you know, at the you know, just random blogger level to the official MFA or People's Daily Authoritative News, they're always talking about the outside world, right? I mean, it, you would think that at this point, the reform and opening up, continuing to open up and the, you know, the outside world would no longer be the outside world. I think that's those are so baked into the cultural identity that it's not going away. And so will China open up, become more open and less open? Maybe a little bit, but you know, it's still narrowly bounded because inevitably China is separate from the rest of the world and can never can never fully open. I mean, even just the idea of um, Chinese citizenship, right? I mean, you see this in some other countries too, but living in China, you know, I would, every once in a while I'd go tour somewhere else and go to Suzhou or somewhere and uh, some Chinese tourists or would start a conversation with me and, and ask me where I'm from. And I'd be like, Beijing, I'm a Beijing, Beijinger. And uh, that was the funniest thing in the world to them because there was no way, uh, you know, I was from Beijing. Like I, you know, I could never be Chinese. And so, so opening up is is still a relative term because it, it always will come from a place of, you know, opening or closing, but never integrated. So on the point of China having issues understanding the outside world, when you say outside world, you don't just mean the West, right? You also refer to like its actual geographical neighbors. It also has issues understanding. So like Mongolia or Vietnam or you know Korea and Japan, it, does that level of misunderstanding also extend to those countries? I think so. We've seen, especially recently, a number of notable quotes by CCP leaders about, you know, Asia for Asians. I can't remember who it was. Who, someone just recently, one of the MFA folks, said something about, as an Asian, you'll never be a, a white person or Caucasian. Um, so you should basically just, I'm paraphrasing, 
Uh, so basically, you should just be thinking about Asia for Asians and focus on working with China. So yeah, I, I think I, there is more of a shared identity, especially with um, the other sort of Confucian cultures of Korea and Japan, but they're not Chinese. So uh, in some of your writings, you refer, you say the PRC calls the current state of great power competition as a new Cold War. You know, on this point, I'd like to ask if the PRC viewed the relationship as a new Cold War first, or if the United States was the first to view the relationship as such. Did they view it as like a Cold War light, even as early as like 19, you know, in the early, like 1976, 1979, even with like the Kissinger opening up, they were already viewing it in that framework and they were just waiting and biding their time? Or is this more of a new thing? Good question. I, I don't know. Um seems to me that the term new cold war sort of came into sort of resurgence fairly recently within the last you know towards the end of the i would say the end of the obama administration but certainly beginning of trump administration and it you know it's a, it's a loaded term that i've i've argued that in the west there's been there was for a while and still is a little bit is this a cold war is this not a cold war but one of my usual points for this and, and many other sort of phrases is what it, what does China mean by that, right? And so one of the things that I think is worth pointing out is that for us, when we are arguing, us being Americans, argue about the Cold War, our perspective on it is, one, we won the Cold War, right? And so if it is or if it isn't, it's, you know, it's not such a bad thing if it is Cold War, like we can handle that. And to some extent, it actually encourages a little bit of a intellectual trap because it risks, especially sort of our very senior leaders, and including military leaders who grew up in the during, you know, grew up professionally in the Cold War. It incentivizes them to fall back on Cold War strategies and approaches as an effective strategy to counter China. But more importantly, from what China means by the new Cold War, it's, it's a term that they're using in a negative way that I think we we are not helping ourselves by continuing to have that debate because for most of the countries that China's targeting the use of this term for, uh, the original Cold War was not a good thing, right? I mean, much of Asia, especially Southeast Asia, where the, where the proxy wars for the Cold War happened. You know, most of these countries do not look at at the Cold War as a, a Cold War. It was it was still hot, it just wasn't nuclear, and they were sort of the they were trampled in the middle between you know the Soviet Union and the United States fighting one another. They 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 didn't win in any way from that, um, and so I think. China's use of the new Cold War term terminology is is intended to to basically exacerbate sort of this don't make us choose that is sort of what I think is the next evolution of that sort of propaganda narrative, which is, you know, here are all these little countries um, and they don't have a dog in the fight, um, but they're the ones that are going to be most severely affected. It doesn't matter if, you know, if there's an economic battle between the United States and China, or God forbid, like a military battle, China and or the U.S. may win or lose, but it's pretty likely that all the countries in between, uh, they don't they don't stand to win much. Like they're they're probably going to lose, right? Or at least you know if you're playing the odds, that's it's a reasonable perspective to have. And so the new Cold War idea uh, is meant to sort of highlight the contrast between. Uh, the U.S. and China, and the fact that nothing good will come from this. So 
what's China's stated desired end state as a, you know, what is their desired end state at the end of great power competition? Because they seem to believe it's, uh, there's a terminus to it. There is an end. Whereas I think for us, the doctrine's evolving to the point where we're viewing as you manage competition, you don't actually win it. So I'm, I'm very curious what their view on this is. Yeah, great, great point. I would disagree a little bit. Um, for a while, it's kind of invoked the to uh, invoke the, you know, Karst book of finite and infinite games um, and argue that, you know, China has an infinite game approach as opposed to the U.S. and the U.S. government, which has more of a finite game. And so in the earlier years working with the, in the government, one of my frustrations was I tried to help write strategies in the Pentagon. And it was hard because we didn't really have a clear sense of what our goals were. And then even as time went on and we started to refine those goals, the idea that we can win, I think, was it's a misnomer. And so there's a lot of very legitimate criticisms of using the term great power competition, and even some for strategic competition. Uh, but I, I like the fact that at least it it shows that there's no there's no definitive win for it. And I think for China, uh, I, I think it's similar, um, but I think that China's goals are, again, like the idea of sort of rejuvenation, resuming its rightful place, and, and like how, how is that accomplished and how is that measured is hard, but I think that also serves the CCP's interests. You know, it's the socialist struggle is a term that is still used all the time by the CCP. And it's a very useful term because it essentially suggests that it's never ending, right? And so you can continue to argue that the CCP uh, is essential because the struggle isn't over, right? You know, like you, Xi Jinping can't leave power because the job's not done. And so I don't think that even national rejuvenation, there are specific markers, I think, that, but again, even they're broad, like, you know, the military modernization three-step process, they they declared the first step over and, and accomplished in, I think, 2021. But it was so vague, like, how how is anyone going to prove or disprove that? China claimed that it had successfully eradicated poverty as as it was one of its goals. That one's a little easier to to prove or disprove because there are metrics, but that didn't stop the CCP from declaring declaring success and victory and not having to prove it. So I think, you know, even for the Chinese, uh, for the CCP, the goal of rejuvenation can always be aspirational and it can always justify the continued rule of the CCP as well as in some cases doing taking steps and measures that the Chinese citizens may not be happy about, but they you know are told, you know, we need to we need to struggle, we need to suffer, we need to strive, we need to like accept some sacrifices in order to continue you know, our rejuvenation process. I have two last, like two final questions. <laughs> the, the first one is popular media in the West tends to ascribe superhuman capabilities to the CCP, the PLA, and its various policy and propaganda organs. So there's like that Michael Pillsbury book, 100 Year Marathon, asserts there's a grand plan. You know, we hear echoes of this too and how the Belt and Road Initiative is covered. It's supposed to be this global network that will expand CCP power and influence. We 
you know, get tastes of this when we read news articles about how the United Front work activities are portrayed. You know, there's all these secret police stations. They have this web of influence everywhere. I'd like to get your take on this. You know, are we missing something when we take policy announcements and prescriptions that emanate from Beijing at face value? How much of this is how much of this is smoke and mirrors? Beijing trying to make it look like it's more influential and powerful than it actually is as a form of deterrence and how much of this is actually, you know, backed by fact and true. So I I am emphatically not in the Pillsbury camp. I think the the Chinese government is a huge mess, uh, incredibly inefficient and not aligned in in many ways. And their ability to plan, you know, multiple steps out, it's even harder for them to do than it is for the U.S. government to do. Um, That being said, the CCP does do a good job. um, And this, again, comes from the socialist view of information, right? So Chinese media environment is not there to help people, you know, make decisions. It's there to tell them what to think. And so it does a great job of helping every Chinese citizen understand, you know, the CCP's goals and, you know, strategies and approaches and priorities. And so things like the United Front are incredibly effective because everyone generally understands what they should be doing and, you know, how to work towards that goal, even if they're not given, you know, either specific instructions or, you know, step-by-step plan or metrics, right? There are certain fundamental principles that guide all all these sort of nationalist actions, right? And some of those are things like you want to be loyal to China. And so therefore you want to work to help China, you know, become economically powerful, you know, powerful and, and you know, a modern, prosperous, developed country. Um, and so you don't need the step-by-step laid out plan that one wouldn't be followed very well by that many people. But also, I mean, things change all the time, right? So, you know, strategy is just a a plan to start and then depart from. Um, And so I think, you know, there are certain certain concepts that are that are clear. You know, the West is not to be trusted. Japan's not to be trusted. Uh, That we are a threat to to their security and prosperity, things like that, um, that help guide the average person's behavior. But I don't think that there is um, there is a, a grand grand plan, and for that matter, I mean, I point out that I think that history will look back on Xi Jinping as a terrible leader. I mean, he has made mistake after mistake, um, in my opinion, and I think in the opinions of of many people, including in China. He is he's driving that country. You know, the country had been on a, a pretty amazing path of development and it's through i think my opinion is through his muscular policies of control domestically and sort of pushing back uh internationally he seems to keep compounding mistakes that have essentially derailed what should have been uh, a pretty safe bet of china's economic development rise and i think uh you know, his strongman tactics are quite effective at keeping him in power. But at some point, the leadership will change. I don't know if it'll be for better or for worse. But I think the 
we'll look back and the Chinese will look back if the history hasn't been completely erased and rewritten. I think they'll look back and, and be like his decisions uh, and maybe even his personal ego and ambitions for a legacy. They were responsible for almost the catastrophes of the Mao era. Not quite. But. So final question for our listeners, what would you recommend they read to gain a better understanding of you know, world, the world views of PRC leaders, you know, China changes day by day. So for our listeners who are primarily a bunch of analysts, um, how do you recommend they keep up with the changing viewpoints and the changing conditions on the ground as they try and put together an analysis for their commander? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's a lot of classic books and I have several reading lists that um, either Others, you know, U.S. government colleagues have written or come up with, or I've helped develop, and I can I can share those. Um, there's some absolute classics uh, in there as well, some new ones that are that are excellent. Um, but I think for me, uh, the idea of sort of strategic empathy, or sorry, um, cultural empathy, is is really important, um, and. It's one of the things that I spend most of my time doing is reading what the Chinese are saying, um, even though it might and it generally is propaganda, right? But there's and there's a you know there's a handful of people who do this and they do it professionally and they do it better than I um, because it's a real skill to be able to wade your way, forget the language, to wade your your way through uh, the you know CCP way of of speaking like it's it's atrocious it's incredibly difficult it's it's a bog um but i'm i'm regularly impressed by the people who can do that and you know will detect in a long string of what seems like generic phrases that are always said one word difference and then be able to tease out the meaning and I do not think it's an exaggeration when they say this this was important uh, because that is how the CCP uses the information domain. And so again, like I would say if there are, you know, there are ways for anyone to read the Chinese news, in particular uh, the People's Daily and um Either sort of Chosha is another one that's a CCP theoretical journal, so it's it's even more dense. Uh, same thing with st uh, Study Times or Learning Times, uh, theoretical. But as people who know these publications much better than I, um, who have been you know kind enough to share their wisdom and approaches with me, uh, those um, the the theoretical journals are going to give you the best heads up on ideas that will likely influence policies further down the road. And then the People's Daily is the authoritative mouthpiece of the CCP. And so, you know, if you read the Global Times, uh, you're, you're reading, um, um, uh, what kind of the word right now, a tabloid, you're reading tabloids, right? And it's still worth reading for a couple different reasons. But if you're going to read one thing, read the People's Daily, uh, ideally, the, the the Chinese one. There's, you know, Google Translate works pretty well. Uh, but if not, read the English one. And it just takes time. You know, that, that one of the things that as a person who's done sort of China, if you will, OSINT, 
Um, although I would say I'm not an Intel guy, so I don't do intelligence, but you know, publicly available information uh, for China. One of the things that I think sets you know, analysts apart, US analysts, um, is there's no uh, replacement, there's no substitute for experience, right? Like you can read the People's Daily and write a book report about what it said. Uh, but the real skill comes into reading it and then knowing what's significant and why it's significant. And the only real, I think the only, or at least the best way to do that is you have to build up a knowledge base. You have to know what's normal in order to see something that departs from normal and then decide if it's significant. After that, you know, you work with other colleagues that you trust to figure out what it means. Um, but you know, anyone who's trying to understand China, that you know, the, the cultural empathy part of this too is idea that you know, I, I've seen this a lot uh, in terms of cognitive bias. You know, if we disagree with something, it's very easy to just dismiss it. And you know, one of my big points that I make, you know, in my job all the time is it doesn't matter if we agree or disagree with China. We don't, it doesn't matter, you know, if we think they're right or wrong or they're factual or not you know because the way that china is interpreting you know what the us is doing and others are doing are based on its perspective and its beliefs right or wrong and so when i read things from china if i even if i vehemently disagree with them um i still i need to put that aside and try to understand you know what's the logic behind you know behind this according to china because there's got to be a logic, right? I mean, almost always there's a logic to it. And if I can understand that, then I can better understand how China is going to, you know, its its decision-making process, but also how it's going to interpret and possibly react to the things that others are doing. And so reading something like the People's Daily uh, with as much of an open mind as possible helps you know the the social credit system is you know another example of that is instead of and i've I've definitely had people i've worked with be like you know the social credit system is terrible and that's the end of it there's no need to consider it any further i'm like well you know we can actually discern maybe some you know information you know uh approaches or you know narratives that we could use that might be more effective uh if we understand why you know, why China has a social credit system and what the Chinese think of it. That's a great point, the, you know, social credit system. You know, the way you explained it, it actually fulfills a signaling problem within Chinese society, right? How do you signal you're trustworthy enough for me to do business with you or for me to share sensitive information or, you know, just trust, which is let me take for granted in the West, but um, is at a premium for certain segments of Chinese society. Uh, I think from an analytical standpoint, that opens up you know, a lot of potential friction points that are worth exploring and probably additional avenues for more detailed analysis. Absolutely. This concludes part two of our episode discussing the geostrategic thinking of the PRC and its leaders. Please note that the views expressed in this episode are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, the Asia-Pacific Center for Security Studies, or the Army Foundry platform. Attached to the show notes are the transcript for this episode. We will also include some recommended books from Dr. Filler, 
for those who would like to learn more on the topics we discussed today. If you have questions, comments, and most importantly, suggestions for topics we should cover in future episodes, drop us an email at hindsight.podcast.afp at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Vu Tran, signing off from Fort Liberty, North Carolina.